As I mentioned last week, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once told his class of budding theologians and aspiring future ministry leaders, if you want to be pastors, you must sing Christmas carols. Now, why did Bonhoeffer insist on singing carols? It's not because they're beautiful or traditional or familiar or nostalgic, but rather because the whole gospel is contained in these songs. So by insisting that we sing carols, he's encouraging us and inviting us to enter into the joy and the wonder of Christmas. So during this Advent season, we're going to explore the gospel message that is contained in some of our favorite carols. Now, we began last week by considering Joy to the World, that was written by Isaac Watts. And today we turn to What Child Is This?, which we sung a moment ago and which was written by William Chatterton Dix and set to the tune of Greensleeves, which was a tune that had long been in existence before he wrote this particular hymn. But the first thing I want to point out is that both Isaac Watts and William Dix were people who were very sensitive to the struggle with depression and with despair. Isaac Watts was very close friends with the fellow hymn writer, William Cooper, who is not as well known as Isaac Watts, but some of his hymns are among the most theologically rich that you will find out there. He's the one who introduced into the English language the phrase, God moves in a mysterious way. Most people think that comes from the Bible, but no, it actually came from a hymn. And William Cooper was someone who struggled with depression and doubts about his faith all the way up to the very end of his life. And William Chatterton Dix, for his part, was a successful business person that ran an insurance office in Glasgow, Scotland. And he was struck with a near-fatal illness in his late 20s that threw him into a severe depression. And as he was recovering from this close encounter with death, he experienced a spiritual awakening that changed him forever. And he became an avid reader of the Bible and then started turning out hymns and carols like this one. Now, the point that I'd like to make here is that there are people of faith, people of faith in Jesus who have gone before us in their doubt and in their struggle. And even in the midst of all of their confusion and their suffering and their unanswered questions, they've given us songs to sing. They've given us songs to sing. And so when we turn to what child is this, we realize that this somewhat mournful tune and these incredibly meaningful words provide us with hope even in the midst of despair. So today we'll look at uh, what child is this. Now this carol is drawn from Luke chapter 2. It's not necessarily based on Colossians chapter 2, but as you'll see in a moment, there's a clear resonance between them. And this carol tells us three things, so I'd like to consider each of them this morning. This carol tells us who Jesus is, what he did, and why he matters. So let me invite you to open up a Bible to Colossians chapter 2. You'll find our passage printed in the order of worship, 
as well as on page 984 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Will you please pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with Jesus. And it's in the strong and powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, this carol tells us who Jesus is. What Child Is This is written from the standpoint of the shepherds who are told of Christ's birth. And in order to distinguish this baby from all the other babies in Bethlehem, they're given a sign. And the sign is that they will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. Now, you don't typically expect to find a baby lying in a feeding trough reserved for animals. So this is how they know that they've come to the right place. But you can only imagine what the shepherds must have been thinking. What child is this? And in the second stanza, we hear the shepherds wondering, why lies he in such mean state? Meaning, why would a baby, as important as this one supposedly is, be born into such a poor, impoverished condition? that he would be lying in a feeding trough. His crib is the place where ox and ass are feeding. Although I'm quite sure that the ox and the ass were not feeding out of the trough at the same time that Jesus was laid in the manger. But you would think that a person born into that condition would be a nobody, somebody of no consequence. But no, he's not a zero. He's not a nobody. He's not a nothing. He's everything. He is Christ the King, the Word made flesh. And that's what Colossians is telling us. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God, the fullness of the divine has taken bodily form in the person of Jesus. And he is the head of all rule and authority. But this is where we have to begin. This is the right question. What kind of a child is this? Now, if you go out there and if you ask people, 
at school or at work or just out there on the street, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Most New Yorkers are probably going to say, well, he was just a man. He might have been especially insightful or inspiring, but the whole idea that Jesus would be worshipped as God was a later addition, and it was all based on a big mistake. People started to believe that he was something more than he was simply because they wanted something to believe in. Or at best, people might say, well, maybe Jesus had a special connection. He, he, he was more in, in touch with God than the rest of us. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, he's still just a man, a mere mortal like the rest of us. We find it hard to accept, incredibly hard to accept, that Jesus could actually be divine. And so why is that? Why is it so hard for us to believe that Jesus is not just godly or godlike, but God? Why is it so hard for us? And the answer is simple. It's easy. It's because this is so far outside of our experience. We haven't met anybody like that before. If we knew other people in our lives who were divine, it wouldn't be so hard for us to accept. But it's so far beyond our experience. But you see, that is the whole point. The argument against why Jesus could possibly be divine is the whole reason why Christians worship him as we do, because we believe that he is unique, that he's in a category all his own, a league of his own. There's no one like him. This is what theologians call the scandal of particularity. We're scandalized by the particularity of Jesus. Why him? Why in that point of time as opposed to another? It's the scandal of the particularity of Jesus that makes it so hard for us to accept his divinity. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay in which he argues that the idea that God would become a human being in the person of Jesus is the grand miracle. This is the great miracle. This is the miracle of all miracles. And he says the problem is that it, it runs against our, our modern democratic sense of openness and equality. We would assume that, that everybody should be able to start at the same level place in their search for God, but the Bible tells a totally different story. If there is a God, if there is a supernatural being beyond the universe, beyond the world that we could see and touch, then the only way we could know anything about that God is if he chooses to reveal himself to us. And that's the story of the scriptures. He chooses to make himself known to one particular people over all the earth. He reveals himself to one particular family the family of Abraham, and then the story continues to narrow and narrow down to one single person. That's the scandal of particularity. And this is how Lewis puts it. He says, we with our modern democratic and mathematical presuppositions would so have liked and expected all people to start equal in their search for God. One has the picture of great centripetal roads coming from all different directions, with well-disposed people, all meaning the same thing and getting closer and closer together. How shockingly opposite to that is the Christian story. One people picked out of the whole earth, 
That people purged and proved again and again. The whole thing narrows and narrows until at last it comes down to a little point. Small as the point of a spear, a Jewish girl named Mary at her prayers. So the carol tells us, believe it or not, that Jesus is Christ the King, the Word made flesh. But what is it that he's come to do? Well, this is the wonder of the incarnation. The infinite became finite. The all-powerful became helpless and vulnerable as a little baby. The one who's the ultimate healer will be wounded. The one who is the source of life itself has come to die. And what makes this carol so powerful is that William Dix understood that Christ was the king. But what kind of a king is he? He's not a king who will reign from a golden throne. But no, he is a king who will hang from a wooden cross. See, notice in the very first line, the shepherds ask, what child is this who laid to rest? Now think about that expression. What child is this who laid to rest? Typically, we would use that expression to refer to someone's burial. We lay them to rest. And yet what Dix is doing here is he's, he's telescoping. He's collapsing the birth and the death of Jesus almost into a single event. He alludes to Jesus' burial even at his birth, and for good reason. You know why? Because the Gospel of Luke does the exact same thing. In Luke chapter 2, we're told that after Mary gave birth, she wrapped the baby in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. But then you Read ahead to Luke chapter 23, and after Jesus dies on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea takes him down from the cross, and what does he do? He wraps him in linen cloths and laid him in a tomb. Do you see this? From the very beginning, the shadow of the cross falls across the cradle. The whole reason why Jesus has come is to die. The very baby that is laid in the manger will become the body that is laid in the tomb. And it's important to see, well, why? Why will Jesus die? He's not going to die as a martyr for his faith. No, he's going to die as a substitute for you and for me. And William Dix puts this so evocatively, nails Spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me and for you. And it's important to see that Jesus does not die as a helpless victim of a tragic death, but no, he dies as a willing substitute for you and for me. And Colossians chapter 2 draws out the significance of this. Whether because we have actively rebelled against God or we're simply passively indifferent to him. Either way, as a result of our transgressions and our failure, we're not only alienated in our relationship with God, but we are now subjected to death, spiritual death. That's what Paul writes in verse 13, and you were dead 
in your trespasses. But Jesus clears the books. He cancels the record of debt that was held against us. Now, you can think about it like this. Every one of us has a record. Every one of us has a rap sheet in God's eyes. We've all got a rap sheet. But what is it that Jesus has done for us? Well, he's taken that rap sheet and he's laid it aside. He's done away with it. Why? How? Because he nailed it to the cross. By taking our sin upon himself in his body on the cross, he was able to take that record and destroy it. So you see, this is the the very heart of the gospel. Jesus takes your record, what you deserve, so that he might give us his record, his perfect rap sheet, so that we might be treated as he deserves. And that's not all. Through the apparent defeat of the cross, Jesus triumphs over death and the powers of evil so that he might raise us up to new life in him. You were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that was held against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. One of the best books on the incarnation was written in the 4th century by an Egyptian named Athanasius. And you might be interested to know that C.S. Lewis actually wrote a contemporary introduction to this book on the incarnation, and in it he makes this case for reading old books. He says, especially in theology, you're better off reading old books rather than new ones, including, he says, his own. Well, this book is old. You want old? This is old. 1,700 years old, and it's pure gold. Now, Athanasius was nicknamed Athanasius Contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. And how did he earn that nickname? Well, because he dedicated his life to defending the divinity of Jesus. Even when it seemed as if the whole world was abandoning Orthodox Christian belief. So if you think things are bad out there now, just go talk to Athanasius. He was present at the Council of Nicaea. He helped hammer out the Nicene Creed, and he often found himself embroiled in theological controversies. He was exiled five times by four different Roman emperors. So if you think your life is bad, talk to him. But in this classic book on the Incarnation, Athanasius argues that every human being is created in the image of God. But as a result of our spiritual rebellion and failure, that that image has not been erased, but it has been defaced. In a sense, we human beings, we have dehumanized ourselves through our sin. We become less than fully human, less than what God intended us to be. And the question is, what can God do about it? Well, Athanasius uses an example drawn from the world of ancient art. Imagine an ancient artist paints a portrait of, something, of someone on a, on a wood panel, but then that wood panel is damaged by some external stain. What is the artist supposed to do? Just take that wood panel and throw it out? No, the artist is going to ask the person whose portrait it is to sit for the artist once more so that 
their likeness might be redrawn on that panel. And in a similar way, we might ask, well, what is God supposed to do with us, his image bearers, whose image has now been defaced? Well, it wouldn't be right for those who once bore God's image to be destroyed. But what is God to do? Well, here's Athanasius' answer. What then was God to do? What else could he possibly do, being God, but renew his image in mankind, so that through it men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Men could not have done it, for they are only made after the image of God. Nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The Word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man made after the image. In order to effect this recreation, however, he had first to do away with death and corruption, and therefore he assumed a human body in order that in it death might once for all be destroyed and that men might be renewed according to the image. Now, do you see what Athanasius is saying? How could we be recreated in the image of God? A man, a mere human being, couldn't do it because human beings are only created after the image of God. An angel couldn't do it because angels are not in the image of God. Only Jesus, only the image of the Father, the icon of the Father, the exact imprint of his being could recreate us in God's image. But in order to effect that recreation, he first needs to do away with death and corruption. And so the image of God, Jesus, takes on a human body, a body capable of death, so that through death, he might destroy death and recreate us in God's image so that we might recover our full humanity, so that we might become the people that God has always intended, always destined us to be. Athanasius says that Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. That's the wonder of the incarnation. So do you see the significance here? Jesus didn't just die for humanity in general. He died for you in particular. So that that record of debt that stands against you might be canceled. And so that you might be renewed in the image of God. And therefore, nothing, no accusation can ever stand against you. Do you realize that even now, Jesus, the Word made flesh, is interceding on your behalf before the Father? And that's why William Dix writes, good Christian, fear. He's speaking to Christians now, and he says, good Christian, fear. Not meaning be afraid, but rather stand in awe. Good Christian, fear. Stand in awe for sinners here, meaning you and me, right now, the silent word is pleading. The silent word is pleading. You may not be able to hear it. It might be silent to our ears. But the word, the word made flesh is pleading for you. It's right out of Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, if all of this is true, if God has, in fact, become a human being in the person of Jesus, if he was born and died for you and for me to free us from death and to renew us in the image of God so that we might become truly, fully human, then why does he matter? How should we respond to this? Well, first, remember. Remember the context in which William Dix wrote this carol. Through the shock of coming within the hair's breadth of death. He's thrown into a deep depression, and he realizes that he needs something more than himself to lift him out of it. And it's at that precise moment that the penny drops, that everything clicks, and the gospel comes home to him. And it changes his life forever. He puts his faith and trust in Jesus. He begins to read the scriptures, and then he turns out hymns and carols like this one. Now think about it then. Think about this. What do people say about Christmas? Christmas, they say, is the most wonderful time in the year. But it's for the happy ones. It's for the healthy ones. It's for the ones with the idyllic family situations or where there's no major problems. But you can only celebrate Christmas as long as there's no cancer, no divorce, no empty seat at the table. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Disease, divorce, death, they will make celebrating the holidays especially tense and lonely. But gently, I would like to push back on that assumption that Christmas is for the happy ones because I think we've got it all backwards. What is the message of Christmas? Christmas is about the rescuer who has come to deliver us from all the pain and loss and death that we experience in this life. So Christmas is not for the happy ones or the healthy ones. It's for everyone. It's for everyone who knows that they need a rescuer, that they need to be rescued from pain and loss and death. So how should we then respond? Well, I love the way that William Dix ends the carol. He not only alludes to Jesus' future death at his burial, but he also collapses the visit of the shepherds, peasants, with the visit of the wise men, kings, who bring gifts of incense, gold, and myrrh. But almost certainly, the, the, the shepherds and the kings did not arrive on the scene the same night. And yet, Dix collapses these two events almost as if they occurred in the same night in order to apply it all to us. And so regardless of your status or your station in life, whether you're a peasant or a king, he calls us to bring gifts of incense, gold, and myrrh to own him. So have you done that? Have you owned him for yourself? Meaning, have you made Jesus your own? Well, now is the time to do so. 
The whole reason why Jesus came, the whole reason why he became what we are, why he entered into our world, why he lived among us, why he experienced pain, why he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, the whole reason why he lived and died was to make you his own. And now it's our turn to make him our own. And how do you do that? You must enthrone him. You must enthrone him. Now look, Jesus is already Christ the king. He's the head of all rule and authority. But you need to enthrone him by making him the king of your own life. So you have to give Jesus first place in your heart and in your life. Which means that whatever he says, you will do. If he is the king, that it means that you need to get off the throne of your own life and you need to give it to him. You need to enthrone him. So this Christmas, remember, the king of kings salvation brings and therefore let loving hearts enthrone him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have given us songs, even in the midst of our suffering, our depression, and our despair, in order to provide us with hope. So help us to consider who Jesus is, Christ the King, the Word made flesh, that in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And why did he come? He came to rescue and deliver us. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. We thank you that he has canceled the record of debt that was held against us by nailing it to the cross so that you might renew your image in us. And therefore, we pray that you would help us to respond appropriately, to make him our own by enthroning him in our hearts and in our lives. Give us the grace and the power to do so through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.